Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Grab a seat, make yourself comfortable. And if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Psalm 14 today. Psalm 14 is going to be super helpful. It's been helpful for me. Um, I hope to be helpful for you today. This is actually our last week in our little jog through the book of Psalms. Probably in 18 months, we'll pick it up again and We'll travel through another five, six, or seven. Um, Next week, we start another quick work. It's also not going to be very long, but we're going to be going through the book of Habakkuk. Did you know that there was a book in your Bible called Habakkuk? There is, or or Habakkuk, however you want to say it. He's dead. He doesn't care. You pronounce it however you want. But it is a great book, and it is very timely, and I'm really excited to go through it with you. But Psalm 14... It's going to be the word of the Lord for you and me today. This is something that David wrote, and I'm going to read it to you, and we're going to work through it. Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There, they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. All right, listen, I'm just like you in the fact that I have a complicated relationship with what the world calls foolishness and wisdom, right? We can all be fools. We were talking about this, ironically, in our partnership class when Will was using an example, but whenever I was in high school, this was foolish, but we would hold on to the back of a pickup truck with rollerblades on. This was back when rollerblading was cool, by the way. Don't judge me, right? It used to be cool. But we would hold on to it, and the whole game was, let's see how fast we could get while just skating behind this truck, right? And the last person to let go wins. It was kind of a chicken. So there'd be four or five of us morons back behind this truck, and we would find the nearest highway that was smooth, and I would win sometimes. My record is 56 miles per hour on a pair of rollerblades, right? Now listen, this is foolish. The police said it was foolish. (laughs) My parents said it was foolish. The whole world knows that that is foolish, right? Now, A couple years later, me and those same friends would wait for a building to get kind of close to closing time. We'd sneak in, go to the very top, wait for it to get dark, and we would rappel down the side of this long high rise. And it would be with borrowed secondhand rappelling equipment, and it's foolish. Everybody thought it was foolish. My friends grew to think it was foolish. The building owner thought it was foolish. The police, again, thought that was very foolish. In my 20s, when I was married, And I caught myself doing a lot of home renovation. If I was changing out a light switch, a fan, or a light, I would be so lazy. I would be so lazy to see if that was actually a live wire. I would just kind of grab it a little bit. I would just touch it just to see, right? That's foolish. Some of you have tried it. and You're like, well, it's not that foolish, right, if you touch it quick. But it's foolish. It's not wise. The whole world says that's not wise. Here's the thing, though, when it comes to foolishness. Interestingly, 
Later, I would build my life goals as if God did not exist. I, I would build my life goals how I wanted my career to look, how I wanted my marriage to look, how I wanted everything to look as if God did not exist. And interestingly enough, everyone thought it was wise. God thought it was foolish. I later decided to go into the full-time ministry and everybody thought that was foolish. It's interesting how we look at that. Planting Legacy Church was seen by many, not some, many to be foolish, to not be wise. Preaching the cross of Christ, according to Paul, is seen by the majority of people as something that is foolish. Do you see how foolishness transforms depending on who is labeling fools foolish and the wise wise? Listen, I might not be sticking a fork in a toaster or anything like that anymore, but my, my foolishness it can still manifest. It can still show up in weird ways at weird times. But the world will sometimes applaud it. Applaud this foolishness. Why? What, what gives? How are we supposed to look at this? Friends, this is what we cannot afford to do today. <clears throat> We're going to try as hard as we can to look at fools, but not look at fools as we would apes in a zoo where they're in a cage playing with their food and we're outside a more evolved species. It's important for us to know before we even step foot into a psalm like this that the gospel is perfect for fools. Grace finds us the favor of God when we are our most foolish. It's important to know that before we even get started. But it's also kind of intuitive that we don't instantly become wise, do we? I mean, as we are sanctified, as we grow in the Lord, we become more wise, but why, how? I think to add to the struggle of becoming wise as we grow in Christ, the world can be confusing on what is wise and what is foolish. So I did what any curious, responsible person would do, and I asked ChatGPT, how do I get wisdom? And this is the word salad it gave me. Are we ready? You're not ready. Are you ready? Here it is. It involves learning from experiences, seeking knowledge, and practicing reflection, embracing challenges, learning from mistakes, and consistently seeking understanding in various aspects of life. That is so boring. I fell asleep like three times typing it out. It is a nothing statement filled with blurry words like understanding and learning and knowledge. It's super robotic. And not only is it kind of boring, it's not, it's kind of misleading. I think. I mean, if understanding different viewpoints and capturing experiences and seeking knowledge and learning as fast as we can, if that made somebody less foolish and more wise, we'd be a far wiser people now, wouldn't we? A society. Because we're exposed to more experiences and knowledge and perspectives of life now more than ever before. Today, we have 600,000 new internet users today, every day. We add 600,000 new, I mean, consider that even technology itself, it doubles every 18 months. It used to be every two and a half years, by the way. Everything that is called technology, it doubles every 18 months. Friends, listen, there's nothing you can't get access to. Nothing. I mean, consider podcasts. That's a small sliver of, of, of the content I'm talking about. When podcasts began back in 2002, there was only 11% of Americans that would access it at least once a month, right? I was one of them. Slim pickings back then, right? There's like six people doing it, not very many. Now, it's 80%. 
260 million Americans, at least once a month, have a podcast on in their car, in their ears, at some point pulling in new content. And it's not just new content, it's new content from different perspectives. Just trawl the top 50 podcasts and you have athletes, ex-athletes. You have comedians, ex-comedians, celebrities, a couple scientists, some journalists. I mean, it's varied. And the topics are just as varied. I mean, it's just as wide. This is just this last week. I just kind of started walking through some of them just to see and get a sampling of what are we actually talking about? What kind of con- How wives should become more traditional? How wives should not become more traditional. That was one. Hallucinogenic mushrooms, of course. The use of the N-word. Aliens. Net worth by age. Bigfoot. Plastic surgery. T. Israel. Election. The First Amendment. Yes, the Second Amendment. Gender roles. More aliens. And enough R-rated content to fill a couple locker rooms, right? It's all right there. You can get your hands on it anytime you want. But with all the new content and all the various topics from all the various perspectives to be learned at 1.2 speed, if you so choose, we're just as foolish. We're no wiser. Maybe even worse. This is what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. Stay where you're at. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You know, growing up as a pastor, I always assumed that these dangerous teachers would be pastors, spiritual leaders. I'd like to submit today that I think they can just as easily be those that we subscribe to and smash the like button for because we are just as easily shaped by those voices, just as easily. And those voices are quick to tell you what is wise and what is foolish. And if you listen to that siren song, as Paul says, we will wander off into myths. I'm resolved, friends, that to capture the the hearts and minds of the next generation, we are not as much competing with heretical pastors, even though we are, but not as much as those like Logan Paul, Alex Cooper, Bill Maher, Joe Rogan, those are the voices that are really shaping culture today. They are suiting the passions of itching ears and the masses are wandering off into myths. I think that's gospel fertile ground though, in all honesty, between you and me. And I don't think this is new. I think this problem is as cutting edge as 700 BC. When we look at our Psalm today, Oddly enough, Psalm 14, it's almost identical to Psalm 53. Some of you might have known it. There's one verse that's different. Besides that, they're carbon copies of each other, so we're getting a little bit of a twofer today. But this is a classic wisdom psalm, right? Which is why it sounds kind of proverbial in the beginning, talking about fools and things like that. And there's a few central characters in this psalm, the Lord, the fool, and those who the fools are... Yeah, those who the fools victimize or shame or oppress. There's a couple things you want to know about foolishness to really make sense of a psalm like this. And not only that, but how it imports into your life today. One, foolishness has little to do with intelligence. Very little. I've known brilliant fools. So do you. They get applause very easily. They're famous. They win awards. They're esteemed, wealthy, highly credentialed. They might even hold office. They have... Sky-high IQs, 
but they're fools. Fools are those who do not employ their intelligence in submission to God. That's the key difference. Therefore, their intelligence, let me just be frank, is largely wasted. Largely. I mean, sure, there's common grace that comes from their intelligence. They build bridges and Bitcoin and things that benefit all of mankind, but they refuse to glorify God in these magnificent endeavors. It's just virtually a Tower of Babel. That's what we see their intelligence spent on. Conversely, there's something beautiful, always beautiful to me anyway, whenever we see a high intellect do something beautiful and declare and demonstrate the beauty and the grandeur and the glory of God at the same time. Think of George Washington Carver, Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, all of them doing something, something beautiful, something big, something pivotal, and reflecting the glory of God. Don't fall into the trap that fools are those who touch live wires, right? This is also why, this is also why wisdom is not attached to age. I've met some old fools, and I've met some young people that are wise beyond their years, as we like to say. So that's number one. The second, foolishness is not the same as atheism, but it certainly behaves like it. You can believe in God and still suppress truth. This is what we would call practical atheism. And listen, I'll submit that I think all of humanity comes face to face with this, every man, woman, and child. I want you to consider that both creation and our conscience clearly speak a universal language to you and me of the existence of a beautiful God, but we are all free to suppress that. All of us are, and a lot of us do. And when we do, we do so against the grain of what we know to be true. This is what Derek Kidner calls intellectual suicide. It's when we know better and we move against the grain anyway. This is how Paul says it in Romans 1. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So when you see the marvel of the human body, the scope of the cosmos, the intricacy of an atom, we're left with no other real logical conclusion except for there is a God. He is beautiful. He is above us. He is separate from us. He is caring for us. That's what we're left with. Why? Because God has plainly told us. He has plainly shown us. You know, my turn towards Christianity as a junior in college, I remember it happening in, of all places, an advanced biochemistry class. When we were breaking down the boring steps of photosynthesis, and there are a bunch of them down to the molecular level, and I remember looking at all of it and realizing if you pull one molecule out, it shuts the whole process down. No photosynthesis, which means our atmosphere changes, which means that we struggle as, as, a, as a people one molecule gone. And I realized, wow, who are we kidding right now? I mean, honestly, this was clearly designed and it shows goodness and kindness and thoughtfulness and beauty in creation. That's actually the very first day that I started to rethink, maybe there's something to God after all. Maybe. Congruently, we have Romans 2.15. Romans 2.15, it says this, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now, this is not creation, this is conscience. 
while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Listen, your conscience is nothing less, nothing shorter than God's moral law stamped on your soul, alerting you to the fact that lying is wrong and murder is wrong. Nobody had to really tell you that. Nobody had to tell you that. Stealing is wrong. Nobody had to tell you that. I I remember the futile exercise, or as Kittner says, the intellectual suicide, the futility of denying what I kind of suspected was true, that there is a God. He's moral. He has a law. He shows me in his creation. He shows me in my conscience and in my deep need. I told people I wasn't conflicted. I told people I didn't believe in God. And I somewhat kind of believed it, but when I was alone at night and I stared at the ceiling and it's dark and I'm trapped in my own mind with my own questions, I thought to myself, man, who am I kidding? There's got to be something though, right? What do I do with that? I felt the conflict that he's talking about. Listen, pro tip on evangelism, do not be intimidated by the bluster of critics and academics. They're conflicted. They're conflicted at a deep level. Now, they might have dulled their conscience over time. We can sear it over time. But friend, they're Christ-haunted. When they're alone in their own head, they suspect what you're saying could likely be true. Their consciences accuse them. Why? Because it's embedded by a creator who is good and has made himself clear and plain. That's why. Now, why is all of this important? I want to draw your attention to the clear fact that we're not automatically wise just for being intelligent for being a Mensa grad. That doesn't make you wise. Or for even believing that there is a God. Actually, not all fools are even the same. In the Bible, there are different species of fools. There's foolishness that comes with youth, right? Hanging on the back of the trucks, that's a foolishness. There's, there are different kinds of foolishnesses, but this one, this key one in this psalm is about proud moral rebellion. It's Nabal is the word that we're, that we're after. It describes the person that says, against their own understanding, nobody tells me how to live my life. Nobody tells me what to do. This is a practical atheist. It's not someone that doesn't that is convinced there's no God. There's one that it understands there, there likely is. I'm just going to move against the grain. This fool sees God and yet does not fear God. Why? That sounds stupid to me. Why? The Bible's clear. Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. They say to themselves, the fool, this doesn't hurt anybody. And I'm entitled to it. Check that. I need it. Nobody knows about this. It's never going to come out to play. God understands. I mean, it's probably not great that I'm doing this. It's probably not great that I'm addicted to this, but it's not hurting anyone. It's definitely not going to be seen. After all, God is holding me back. God isn't giving me what I really need. After all, this is better than God. In fact, this is my God. That's the dialogue of a fool. That's the dialogue of someone who is entrapped in foolishness. John says it best of all. John 3, stay where you're at. He says, and this is the judgment. The light, the light, has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things, hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. The main idea is clear. We hate exposure, so we look for dark corners. Very clear. 
Listen, again, we cannot afford to see this as something that other people deal with. There is a fool in all of us, right? Does not want anyone, especially God, to tell us what to do with our life. We don't want to submit our cravings, our longings, our hopes, our addictions. We don't want to submit those things. And this is not a you situation. This is a universal dilemma that we're all in, which is why we see very clearly in Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is what people do with this passage right here. They, they, they excuse it by saying, yes, but those were pre-flood people and they were extra nasty, right? Which is why we needed the flood. Let's be honest. There are 100% nasty people, but we're on the other side of the flood, so we're more like 67% nasty. On top of that, I'm not like most people. I'm really only 5% nasty. That's what we do with a passage like this. Are we really convinced that we're less foolish today? Are we really less wicked Before you answer that, Romans 3.10, Paul actually pulls from the psalm that we're in today. And this is what he says. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. This is the image I carry in my mind. I imagine like a, a, a mine, like a coal mine or a gold mine or some other ore. You choose. And I, I imagine it's mostly clay and rock and dirt But if you're a good miner, you will start to see a streak of an ore or a vein, as they call it, of coal or gold or something like that. In all of us, there is a vein of foolishness. In all of us, there is a a river, a stream of just not being wise, something that declares, I know better than God. He cannot tell me what to do. Now, I'd never say it like this, and I don't think you would either, not out of your mouth. But in our most inner person, what we really want is to be self-sovereign. Self-sovereign. Nobody tells me what to do. Not even God. I alone am sovereign. Friends, we get that honestly from Adam, the original fool, who operated as one who did not want God telling him what to do. It's the first time we see self-sovereignty appear in creation. Where he says, why depend on God's wisdom? Why depend on him to tell me what is good and evil when I myself can be like God? I can be God myself. And that genetic marker that was alive in him that cracked the cosmos and created the fall, it calls out to you and it calls out to me. And here's the thing. It doesn't have anything to do with your mind. It's got everything to do with your heart. Foolishness is not a mind issue. It's a heart issue. You and I, we're not value neutral. We have cravings, we've got longings, we've got loves, and so when we have options before us, we see those options through our heart, through what we want. We think through our hearts. It's why smart people do stupid things, right? It's why judges embezzle. They're educated. It's why they cheat. It's why scientists refuse basic biology. These are not brain issues. These are heart issues. Because what we tell ourselves is if there is a God and I submit to him, then I can't do what I want to do. I can't be who I want. Let me pull a little for you today. Where can you be the most foolish in your life? Where can you attempt sovereignty? Trying to be self-sovereign. Where is that for you? I mean, you might believe in God, but that's not even what we're asking, right? Where do you declare mine? Hands off. You cannot tell me what to do. I'm fine without you. In fact, I have to have this because you're not better. 
Again, that's the language of a fool. Even if the world says it's wise. And because your heart is a human heart like mine, this is how the human heart rebels against even a teaching like this. Luke's not talking about me. He's talking about fools. But he's not talking about me in this little area because it's not foolish. It's, I mean, it's not great. It's not great, but it's not going to kill me. In fact, I'm happier. It's not submitted to God, but it's not like I'm his enemy or anything. And after all, the gospel and stuff, right? The gospel's good, so I'm okay. Listen, that rebellion loves the dark corners of your life. It hates the light of the gospel. It hates it. So what is required for you and me to escape foolishness? What is it going to take? I mean, if we see that we're fools, and it's in all of us, and we see how the world tells us to get out of it, and, and, and ChatGPT and others will say, listen, just listen to the best, best podcast. Travel the world. Buy a journal. Fill it up. Meet as many different people as you can. Experience culture. Consume college classes. Go and get more college classes. Age a little bit. That's what it says. But this is how you and I will try to do it without Jesus. Without Jesus, we also can try to fix our foolishness. And this is where we need to be careful. Because what you and I have the capability of doing and can get very good at is going through the Christian motions without a submitted heart, and we're no wiser for it. We're just as foolish. I tripped on this thing. It's probably been around forever. I usually see stuff when it comes out and becomes a little bit viral. That's part of my job is to kind of keep an eye on that stuff. But I didn't even know this existed until this week. Something called the Sunday Assembly. They're all over the country, mostly in big cities. NPR did a big write-up on them because the nuns and the duns of our culture make up the majority now. It's about a third of our population. But that's a wide net. It's agnostics. It's atheists. It's people that pretend to be one and they don't even know what it means. But it's just people that don't love Jesus, right? And what they do is they meet up in assemblies all over the country and they experience what, frankly, looks a lot like a church service to me, Right? And it's even on Sunday mornings. The Sunday Assembly is a secular congregation that celebrates life without deity, life without dogma, life without doctrine. When interviewed, one of the leaders says, our motto is to live better, help often, and wonder more. Yikes. She says, we're just really a group of people who come together once a month or sometimes more frequently to just try and figure out how to be good people without turning to ancient religious texts to do so. So we're trying to be good people and trying to figure out how to do that well. <laughs> Listen, no Bible, no Jesus, no gospel, no repentance, no prayer, no point, no baptism, no communion, no doxology, no reconciling disagreements, no dedicating kids, no mission, none of that. You know what it sounded like the more I read about it? It sounded like a TED Talk and karaoke a little bit, right? And then everybody goes to lunch. Knoxville used to have one, a Sunday assembly, until about four years ago. The research I did, it shows that it shut down right around when the pandemic came and killed it. Pandemic killed a lot of churches and things like this, but there were 832 followers. Sunday assembly. It looks wise to the world. It carried kingdom principles, but it cut God out. Quick question for you. Can we be in danger of doing that exact same thing today? Could this be a Sunday assembly for people? Could it? I think some of us are doing it, right? And so when we get to some point like forgiveness, and God pricks our heart, 
and we see somebody and we think, I need to forgive that person. Boy, what they did was dirty though. What they did doesn't deserve forgiveness, but I know I need to do it. But then there's a pivot that says, but God, you don't tell me what to do. Hands off. Or, or, or when it comes to serving or grace or reconciliation or giving your finances, any point where we say, hands off, nobody tells me what to do, we are falling into the trap of just showing up every week, even if it is every week, to a Sunday assembly. Some of us are church-going and practical atheists at the same time, and that is possible. Any place you've decided to declare self-sovereignty, you have also anointed yourself a fool. So what do we do? If the world can't help us out of our foolishness, and acting like a Christian cannot help us out of our foolishness, how do we get out of foolishness? David shows us. Verse 7, he says this in his psalm. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Out of Zion. It's, it's going to be out of Zion that fools and their victims are going to be refreshed and made glad. Here's the thing about Zion, because it's, it, it could be a little bit of a nothing word to, to a lot of people, even if you've grown up in the church. Zion is a placeholder for sure. It is technically a place. It is technically a hill that's right next to the uh, Temple Mount um, outside of the city of Jerusalem. But it also has been used interchangeably to describe Israel, Jerusalem, and the temple. When people say Zion, a lot of times they mean temple. And that's what's happening in our passage today. Well, the temple, that's the centerpiece of all Israel. That's the place that God dwells. Of course, God is everywhere, but his manifest presence would show up in this temple, and it would be the place, therefore, of blood sacrifices, which allows God's people to come close to God. Why? Because God's people are foolish. We're foolish. And so we'd have to sacrifice animals at the temple to come close to God and alleviate this bone-crushing guilt that we carry. And because we're so foolish... There's a lot of animals being sacrificed, always, constantly, a lot of blood. Gosh, Luke, talking about blood again. Talked about blood a lot last week, talking about blood a lot this week. It's gross to keep talking about blood. That's the point. <laughs> That's the point. If you see blood, something wrong has happened, right? Am I right? Which is why if you're a parent and you hear someone scream across the house, if you're an experienced parent, right, what do you do? Are you bleeding, right? No? On. On to the next thing then. Blood at the temple meant an animal died. Why? To cover our sins. Permanently? No. No. You got to keep coming back over and over and over again until one day, one day, in that same temple, the curtain would be torn from top to bottom. This temple, this place, this intersection of God's grace with our failure, the curtain was torn that used to separate God's manifest presence from mankind. Now there's a clear path. Why? Because at the same time that curtain was being torn from top to bottom, Jesus' flesh was being torn. He made a way. This is what is meant in Hebrews 10 by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. So where traditionally the temple, Zion, was the intersection between man and God, now it's Jesus. He is our better Zion, our better temple. He is the God-man who touches both heaven and earth, creating a space for us. The wise comes for fools. The wise has come for fools. Here's the thing about that cross, though. It looks foolish to the world. That looks foolish. 
I want to read something out of 1 Corinthians. I'm chopping it up. I'm not reading a whole bunch in line. But he says this to the church. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing to the things that are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Paul is not just saying here. He is not just saying that if you seek wisdom from God, you are going to be seen as a fool. That's true. That is going to happen. But he's also saying we have to happily embrace the role of a fool in this world in order to become wise. That is how we find wisdom, is by tackling, embracing, and loving the foolishness of the cross. Wisdom is found in embracing the folly of the cross. Friend, if you align yourself with foolishness of the cross... You will be a fool, but you will be a thoughtful fool. You will be a beloved fool, a happy and joyful one. You will be an unburdened fool. You will be a treasured fool, a hopeful fool. That's what we have waiting. I think this is how Paul gets to a place where he could say to the Corinthian church, for the sake of Christ, I'm content with insults. I'm fine if the applause stops for me. I think this is how we see very clearly the disciples in Acts 5 counting themselves worthy to be shamed for the name. I think this is how they got there. They were fine with the applause stopping. To feel this contentedness and this joy, the world will stop clapping for you. And let me tell you one thing, there is a freedom in that. There is a freedom to not being impressive to everybody, to not having to prove yourself to yourself, God, or, or, the, or your neighbor such a beautiful freedom. When I read Psalm 14 through the lens of the gospel truth for you and me, what God has come to do, I'm left with, with repentance. I have to repent. Maybe you need to repent with me. Where we tell God to back off. Where we claim ourselves sovereign. Where we say, you don't tell me what to do. Where we treat this as a Sunday assembly. Repent, for where we are fearful of swimming against the cultural flow. Repent for just coming apart inside whenever people stop clapping for us. Repent for the, for the feeling of, of just being as wise as we can in this world because we're so fearful of tackling the foolishness of the cross. There's so much to repent for, and I think it's going to hit all of us different, depending on how the Holy Spirit's working in your heart right now. But I also know that the Holy Spirit's working in hearts of those who are not even Christians. You might be here, or you might be watching online, and God is doing something in your heart, and you're far from Christ, and you know it. You struggle with it. Can I just repeat something I've said? Salvation only comes from Zion. Salvation only comes from Christ, the better sacrifice, the better priest, the better king. Our Jesus has come for you, and that crushing guilt you carry every day, you will continue to carry for the rest of your life until you put it at his feet. That I can promise. What it will require is you stop 
being your own sovereign. You've not done a good job, have you? You've not been able to do it well, have you? It's not made you as happy as you thought, has it? The Bible says it's foolishness. Wisdom is found in tackling him and saying, you are good, you are king, you are beautiful, and committing your life 